And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Joseph Minich, and he's teaching fellow at the Devenant Institute. Uh, Joe, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Um, if most listeners are like myself, they're saying, what is the Davenant Institute? And uh, I have one of the articles here in my hand that we're going to be talking about. And uh, But can you briefly explain to the listener, what is the Davenant Institute all about? Yeah, the Davenant Institute is sort of one of these uh, one of these institutions in what uh, Heiser has called sort of uh, uh, the you know the online uh, uh, Middle Earth uh, institutions in the world, which is basically one of these groups that is attempting to do the task of mediating uh, mediating between the academy and the church. So what we do is uh, we're attempting to kind of recover the category of Christian wisdom for the contemporary church, and what we do is is uh, uh, correspond with and cultivate uh, uh, events and, and publications that seek to take contemporary scholarship, but make it not make it, but uh, but uh, mediate it uh, where it is of, of benefit to you know local local churches and pastors and educated laymen. Uh, and so some of that's historical, right? Some of that is you know taking resources that have kind of been forgotten and recovering them as as vital resources for today. And another element of that is then just taking, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, really good ideas, <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and 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 as it were, broadcasting them, uh, broadcasting them, or giving them a, a, a platform to be broadcasted to uh, the local church. So a lot of what it's about is just cultivating a kind of intra-pan-reformed conversation that is of that is a benefit to the church, but that is responsive to and aware of what's going on in the academy, and then also responsive to and aware of the concerns that exist at a more ecclesiastical level. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a kind of it's a it's a project of translation, of mediation, and, and, and that sort of thing. And my my own role is a, I'm, a, I'm a teaching fellow for them, and I help develop that. I, I help develop. Uh, uh, products that uh, basically, you know, one of the things I'm doing is interviewing evangelical pastors and scholars and attempting to put them in conversation with one another to accomplish that goal. And then I'm, I'm also trying to make a kind of creative series of of, uh, of videos for, for people working through the plausibility of the Christian faith that have a, a little bit of a unique spin and sort of uh, attack that angle of pastoral care. Uh, you know, by you know, with our with our distinctive inflection and emphases. Yeah, oh, that's very helpful. Um, if someone, before I forget, wants to look up Davenant, um, what's the web address? Uh, DavenantInstitute.org. And how do you spell that? D A V E N A N T. Uh, so that's the Davenant. Yeah, just like it sounds, and then in, you know, regular spelling of institute. Yeah. And then dot org, and of course I uh, I hope I got that right because my president will kill me if I got it wrong. Uh, <laughs> well, I, if you Google Davenant Institute, you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. Uh, well, let's jump right into it. Uh, one of the recent articles in the Davenant Digests uh, really starts off with the question, and that's the title of it: What should Christians think about Christendom? And um, right away, that's uh, that's a huge subject, and 
I, I think maybe some folks' minds may jump to the Crusades when they hear this thing, Christendom, but I'm hoping that that will be quickly diffused, and you might encourage us to start thinking the way the Lord thinks. And uh, so can you explain to us, maybe first, uh, can Christendom be taken seriously, like one of the questions you asked in your article? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I I and, and that's right. I mean, I, the first thing that comes to our mind when we think Christendom is going to be something like in you know, a holy war or something like that, <laughs> and that's that's something I immediately try to diffuse in the article is that we don't want to you know let's admit at the front that whatever we mean by this term uh, is certainly loaded and <laughs> can have all sorts of bad connotations that we don't want to endorse. Uh, the very basic thing I, I'm trying to get at when I when I talk about Christendom in that in in that that um, uh, brochure is that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Christ. And so part of what I'm trying to do is kind of reframe I'm trying to reframe just just what we even mean by the term Christendom in terms of very, very, very basic propositions that really most Christians could agree with. I mean I think the, the two that I use there are one, uh, everything and all human beings are obligated to to serve God. All human beings are obligated in all of they do, uh, obligated in all of they do, and are dependent in all of they do upon God, and are obligated to recognize God in all that they do. And that includes public public life and private life. That includes our identities as individuals, and it includes our identities as families and as nations. And and then secondly, as a as a matter of God's peculiar and distinctive historical uh, uh, sort of historical administration. Now, all human beings are obligated to to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, "All authority, all you know." And that's such a striking comment. All authority in heaven and on earth uh, uh, has been given to Christ. Um, and, and, you know, in Acts, you know, God calls all persons everywhere to repent. Um, and I might even add to that, I, I shouldn't say adding to the Apostle, but maybe explicating the Apostle there, um, all persons everywhere are called to repent and to believe the Gospel and to serve Christ in all that they do. And really, I think Christendom, you can arrive at and, and we could talk about exactly how this plays out, but we could arrive at a kind of primal and just very basic notion of Christendom just by asking, you know, is there any exception to that? Is there any identity? Is there any is there any uh, is there any corporate identity or national identity or particular task that we do where we don't uh, owe a delighted allegiance to the Lord Christ in what we're doing? Um, you know, is public office exempt from that? And uh, and I think the answer is, in a way, it seems to me the answer is just obviously no. <laughs> yeah. And that, that maybe underdetermines, that underdetermines perhaps exactly what, what Christendom would look like, but it seems to say that we can, we can at least get at a Christendom, if, if, if what we could mean by Christendom is everything belongs to Jesus and everything ought, you know, if we're just being technical, if you will, everyone in all that they do ought to acknowledge him as Lord. Uh, and as king over all that they do, it seems to me that that's the the basic proposition, and then you could kind of go from there. Like, what does what does that actually mean? You know, but uh, yeah. but it seems to me that that's a, a kind of very primal form. You know, very primal form of Christendom is just saying 
hey, everything belongs to Christ in God's in God's sovereign in, in God's sovereign development of history, and uh, we're all obligated in all that we do to serve Him. Yes, yes. Um, no, that's helpful. Um, I often like to think in these terms. Correct me if I'm wrong. That um, this is a very bottoms up. Uh, movement, if you will. It's a movement that God himself has put in motion where um, Christ um, sovereignly um, brings our hearts to him. Uh, he, he alone is Lord of our conscience, and, and so he converts us, and, and that, that spiritual kingdom is there, and it gets fleshed out uh, in the in the everyday world, uh, you could call it maybe a temporal kingdom, where um, he's he's manifest in in this outward life of God's people, in both uh, the visible church and in the commonwealth. And it's that second thing I've added there that that I believe the, the Lord's heart is at too. But some people might have a problem with that, saying, "Oh, wait a minute, the commonwealth—that's like." Uh, me going out into um, a school or or wherever he's over that too, and the Lord would say, "Yes, I'm over that too." Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. I mean, I, I think it's right that we that it, again. It would just part of what, in fact, my own kind of, I think my own conversion to this model is I I uh, I, uh, <laughs> I I took a line previously in my life. Uh, and I was talking to my my stepfather-in-law, and I took a line previously in my life that went something like, uh, you know, exactly Christ, you know, we we owe kind of explicit recognition to Christ in the Church, but there's a kind of neutral, uh, there's not not that Christ somehow technically, circuitously doesn't own the public commonwealth, but, uh, you know, but it's meant, you know, somehow it's meant to be neutral in some way. I I had some way of sort of putting all that together. Mm -hmm. And I remember somebody just quoting Psalm 2 to me. I mean, that was their only response, was just (laughs) to say, like, they just just quoted Psalm 2 out loud, and I thought, you know, that is not the language I'd use, which means I have a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Now, now can you you, uh, remind our listeners what Psalm 2 says? Yeah, right. It's it's just this this notion that uh, you know you know it's, it's basically an explicit call of God for the nations to kiss the sun, you know. Uh, right. And he's speaking to nations as nations, and I suppose that could be eschatologized in some way. But it seems to me that that, that at least in principle, what we see there is some we see the identity of nations as nations. Uh, uh, put in relationship to Christ, who who's who will have the nations as his inheritance, and he's put as a king and a reign as someone who reigns over the nations quite explicitly. Mm-hmm. And in a, uh, and I don't. Uh, it seems to me that that emphasis is not easily reconcilable with with a, a version of Christian political theology which which wouldn't allow for us to just say, hey, it's the, the obligation of nations to, and, and of all persons and all their vocations, to submit to the Son. And I think it works out very much how you just said. It's not, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll maybe make this more explicit in a moment, but it's not the idea then that we're talking about any sort of, you know, conversion through the sword or something like that. Right. The way this works out that has in Christian history is simply, you know, the, the impact of the gospel in people's lives colors all that they do. So it's not that it's not that we serve 
Christ in our family because somebody forced us to. It's we serve Christ in our families because Christ has converted us and we're overwhelmed by his love. <laughs> and then that works itself out. Uh, it works itself out in our families, and it works itself out in our vocation and the way that we treat our, 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 our uh, you know, in the, in the old Westminster language, superiors and inferiors. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so, it, you know, there's an organic working out of this that's not sort of imposed, as it were, from the top down. And that's, that's the legacy of the term Christendom that, of course, we want to kind of avoid, is that sort of top-down imposition. But, but exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. what you said is basically quite right. Yeah, yeah, before our interview, I jotted down a couple of questions, and you just answered this one. Is Christendom achieved by the sword? And the simple answer is no, it is not. Um, now, now, what about this um, can you think of any historical examples of, of, you know, maybe it's small, maybe it's a small area, maybe larger, of where we have seen the establishment of Christendom as imperfect as it is? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, in one sense, we could say that uh, Christendom just is reality. Uh, right, that uh, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth actually just already does belong to Jesus. I, I like that, by uh, the way. And so in, <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, I just came up with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but in a sense, Christendom is more than about getting the world and getting people and all that they do just to acknowledge the reign of Christ that's already there. And so if we're talking about historical examples, then I think that we, we'd have to talk about, um, you know, we'd have to think in terms of more or less. Do we see the reign of Christ more or less instantiated in particular historical circumstances? Mm-hmm. And I think I think there the answer is ordinarily both, and I'm not a historian, so I, I don't, uh, I, I wouldn't want to claim a particular site that some historian could come along and tell me all the problems with it that would disturb sure. me. Sure, you're being <laughs> careful, I know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I'd, w- I'd want to frame it that way. And the irony, the irony there, of course, is that something could be more like, you know, in the way that I just described it, something could be more like Christendom that that looks less, uh, you know, full of religious language than some instances where you have something that's full of religious language but has none of the spirit and the ethos of Christ himself. Right. And so it really is where, you know, in, in a sense, the question then would be, what does Christ recognize? What, what would Christ himself say about a particular historical, political, or familial, or cultural uh, instantiation rather than, you know, which one has just kind of merely external markers. Yeah. And so I think the way that we're kind of defining this would, would also make us, would all, the, the, the kind of way we're reframing Christendom might also help us to reframe what it would even mean to look for instances of Christendom in history. Sure, sure. So. Yeah. Um, when somebody, <laughs> here's an example I've used before, when somebody is in a, a role of service, um, let's say, I think I've used this with my son, who's an HVAC uh, technician, and a very good one, I might add, that as he does his job each day, and he honestly does it as a Christian man, and he supports his family, and he, and he provides a good product to the customer, he's, uh, he's doing a holy work. And it's a, it's a Christian work that he is doing. And I guess this would come under the kind of the heading of um, implicit you use that option, uh, implicit option of Christendom in your yeah. in your study here, and can you explain that just a little bit more? This implicit thing. 
Yeah. So what I what I try to do after I sort of give those two foundations I mentioned earlier in the pamphlet has been to talk about, you know, we could say, you know, sort of how does this work out? Does it work out in, in, in an implicit or an explicit way? And an implicit way would just be to say, like, maybe maybe it is the case that, you know, and I'm not a political theologian, and that's partly why I'm kind of trying to cover both bases here. Maybe it is the case that it's illegitimate or, or irresponsible for, for political orders or governments to explicitly, to explicitly make certain kind of religious claims. You know, the American settlement might be an example of this. And what I try to argue there, though, is, is that the, the standard by which we'd even judge that in the first place is precisely the reign of Christ. That is to say, and that's actually, in a way, historically how that worked out. It was actually the influence of, even if we think this is a wrong way to go, it was historically the influence of certain Christian first uh, theological principles and submission to the very kingship of Christ that, 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 that motivated some people to say, well, because of Christ, because of the gospel, because of his order, and in a way because of God's order through Christ, uh, we need to be very careful about uh, recognizing the limitations of, of earthly government. And that limitation might extend to saying, hey, everybody, this is the standard, you know, religious line. And maybe that, maybe that hypothesis is wrong, but it's still in a, in a peculiar way, a kind of implicit Christendom, and in, in, to the extent that um, to the extent that limitation of government relative to religious confession is a limitation that grows out of Christian confession and is kind of unsustainable apart from that. And that's kind of part of the interesting thing that we're seeing in contemporary life is that uh, that limited, that limitation of, of, of government overreach of the sense into your beliefs uh, is relatively unsustainable apart from a foundation that actually justifies that limitation. And, and then getting to your son, this is exactly how I think of it. Um, it's, it's precisely in ordinary, uh, you know, it's precisely in ordinary labor that is an extension of ordinary Christian love that we actually see the reign of Christ uh, expanded in a commonwealth. I mean, you certainly see this in the, I mean, you see this in ancient Rome, both, both, the, both in in the the Christians' self-description of themselves, for instance, in the epistle to Diognetus, uh, but you also, you know, read these letters from Roman senators or, or Roman, Roman, basically Roman government, describing the Christians, and they're so struck by their, their love, they're so struck by their life, uh, that they... Uh, that they that they see there's something different about these people, and I often think about this toward um, one of the instances I think of is Acts 16. It's really interesting to me. Paul and in Acts 16, Paul is preaching, uh, and he gets arrested. And when he's thrown in prison, and it's interesting to think when he got arrested, it's, it's plausible that the that the jailers that arrested Paul um, actually heard the gospel he was preaching. I mean, to arrest him, <laughs> you know, they had to hear him. Uh, and uh, they throw him in prison, uh, and then there's this earthquake, and, you know, the guy pulls out the sword to kill himself uh, because, he's, you know, he lost his prisoners. But Paul and Silas stay in prison to, to spare this man's life. And it's at that moment, it's actually in that moment not of just hearing the word preached, but in that moment of being loved well by the apostle, that he, recognizes, he, he finds himself in confrontation with an order of things that is clearly other than him. And that's actually the moment that impels him to say, what must I do to be saved? Yes, <laughs> right? yes. Is, is that confrontation of Christian love. And so I think of, you know, when I think of vocation, 
it's, it's shocking sometimes to see people in an ordinary vocation just doing what they do well, doing it with love, doing it in a way that turns the other cheek, doing it in a way that, uh, that, that isn't just about self-serving but is truly about honoring their neighbor. That's genuinely and sincerely striking to people, and that is the reign of Christ. I mean, in, in the lives of people, that is the reign of Christ actually uh, getting its tendrils and its tentacles into the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, for uh, sure. You know, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, let's... Um I'm just looking at the clock. We only got about five minutes left. I I wanted to bring up oh, wow. an I wanted to bring up a news item that may fit into this more explicit description of Christendom. And I don't know if you follow the news. Several years ago, now four maybe um, three or four years, uh, Poland uh, declared Jesus king of the country. Um, I saw this in a couple of news feeds, and um, they had some ceremony at the Church of Divine Mercy. You know, it was a Roman Catholic thing. Um, and I know we're talking Protestant here, but um, there there definitely is overlap because Roman Catholicism certainly is in the, the Christian side of things. And here's what they said. Right. Uh, in our hearts, rule us, Christ. In our families, rule us, Christ. In our schools and universities, rule us, Christ. Through the Polish nation, rule us, Christ. Rule us, Christ. We pledge to defend your holy worship and preach thy royal glory, Christ our King. We promise. And so they prayed. Um, I'm thinking that maybe that is some kind of a example of of a more explicit acknowledgement of Christendom. Yeah, it could be um, uh, one of the. You know, in principle, when I when I see movements like this in the world, you know, without being overly specula- speculative, when I see motions or movements like that in the world, I tend to think, okay, this this could be a good thing. What I would what I would then want to kind of cautiously step back and ask is, you know, can that is there is there a way in which modern sort of instances of Christendom? And I don't know the answer to this, so sure. I'm just throwing out the kind of if I were to go look into it, here's the questions I would be asking. Um, is this part of a kind of recovery of a new nationalist identity in the face of kind of de- disintegrating local cultures? And is it tied up with things that would, is it, is it tied up with things as Christendom has all, often been? And even as such language has often been, even that language you just read, uh, is it tied up with things that we would not want to, <laughs> that we would not want to see? Sure. And I don't know the answer to that. It might, it might very well be, no, it's not, and actually this is just a good thing. That sounds, that sounds lovely. And of course, I'd, I'd also want to ask, um, what does that mean for, what does that mean within a particular commonwealth? And I think this is worth saying before, before our time is up. What does that mean in a particular commonwealth for people who are not explicitly Christian? And I think, I think one thing I would want to say about any version of Christendom I would be interested in or, or think was was good is that it, it it need not be something that's deeply feared by people who sincerely don't believe that's the Christian right. message. Um, and so it's not. Uh, in fact, I think it's part of the reason religious freedom develops uh, in the in in the particular stream that it does is precisely because of the influence of the gospel of Christ, that it is only a matter of, of a gospel that is received in freedom and through the conscience. Um, and so I, I think there's always been a place for, I mean, this is the reason dissent 
you know, whole tradition of the availability of dissent has kind of grown up. Any version of Christendom I would I would want to uh, be interested in would be a version that recognized that Christianity is predominantly spread through persuasion. Yes, um, and therefore that, and it's precisely in the in in the the Christian tradition that we see a role for political and ideological dissent, you know, kind of rise up. And I think that's an important thing because it's, it actually helps. I think ultimately actually having the space for dissent helps us kind of keep us on edge and therefore keep us, uh, keep us following Christ by means of persuasion rather than by means of uh, just sort of, you know, default settings that can then turn into the kind of traditionalism that's idolatrous. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I was going to say also that um, this does go along with this whole, actually, Reformation um, principle that God alone is Lord of the conscience. That's right. And, and the whole the whole bottoms up how that the Holy Spirit of God uh, converts the heart, and and God brings me; He draws me to Himself, and so then when He <laughs> causes the scales, as it were, to fall off my eyes, I willingly and lovingly embrace Him, um, and it's just a beautiful thing when it happens. That's right. Um, that way, which is which is God's way. That's right. Hey, we've been talking today with Dr. Joseph Minich, and uh, he's teaching fellow at the Davenant Institute. And one more time, Joe, could you give our listeners the web address should they like to look you up? Yep, that's the Davenant Institute, D-A-V-E-N-A-N-T, and then institute, the regular way, dot org. Right, and we'll put that up on our website, It's been an honor to talk with you today, Joe, and if anyone has a question, they can email us here at the station, ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org, and uh, we'll get your question out there to Dr. Joseph Minich, and then you can begin uh, correspondence that way. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. 